Hello, hello. Is that coming through? Well, I'm thankful to be able to open up God's Word with you again this morning as we start our study through the book of Galatians. Uh, This study will take us up and through the summer. So I I believe uh, Anniversary Sunday, the week right before that, will be our final text of Galatians. So I hope you enjoy the study, and I look forward to seeing how the Lord uses it to make much of himself in each of your lives, as well as mine. If, uh, if six months sounds like a long time to seven-ish months, sounds like a long time to go through um, six chapters, you're likely a guest, so welcome. Uh, uh, if you are a guest, I would love to get to know you afterwards. Maybe we can talk. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we will start our study in the book of Galatians in a little bit of an unorthodox way, if you will. So let me pray for us. Ask the Lord for help. Dear Father, we praise you and give you glory because you're good and you deserve our worship and adoration. Dear Jesus, we love you for what it is you have done, how you have redeemed us, purchased us and brought us back to yourself, ransomed us, from the domain of darkness, fulfilling your Father's will, being our good shepherd. We do love you. Dear Spirit, we worship you and love you for giving us life in Christ, granting us the faith we need it, giving us the truth of Scripture. And so we we look to you and ask for your help because we have your word open this morning. And apart from you helping us, we can do nothing. We can't even understand. And so we ask that you would open our minds and our hearts and our eyes to behold the truth here, to love it, and to apply it, because you deserve it. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so to start the book of Galatians this morning, I actually want you to turn to the book of Philippians. Told you a little unorthodox start, right? The book of Philippians, we'll we'll flip through, we'll read a couple passages to kind of set the context for Galatians this morning. So Philippians 1, we'll read 1 through 5. I want you to see how Paul greets the church of Philippi. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, In Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, For you always making my prayers with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Look at Paul's greeting. He introduces himself. He greets them. (coughs) Grace and peace. And then he thanks God for them. Turn with me to Colossians. Turn over to Colossians. One book to the right. Look at how he greets the church of Colossae, verses 1 through 7. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints who are faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Verse 3, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world and it's bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. Most first century letters begin in this formula. Most of them follow this three-part format, if you will. First, the writer introduces himself. Then he names who he is writing to, the recipients, followed by some sort of greeting, a way of saying hello. And Paul follows this formula often in all of his letters. Paul, he introduces himself. He says who he's writing to, and then he says hello. If I was writing a church, uh, letter to you, I'll say, this is Stefan. Hi, GBC. And then I'll give a, a word of thanks. I praise God, and I'm thankful for what he's done in your life, how he's grown you, how he's matured you, how you're faithful to the truth. This same formula over and over again in Paul's letters. Look at, listen to me, 1 Thessalonians 1-5. through 5. You can turn there if you want to. Paul, Savannah, and Timothy to the church of Thessalonica in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He follows the same format in Ephesians, except he expands it. You guys know Ephesians. He, Ephesians 1, 2, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in 3 through 14, he expands his blessing to the Lord. He says, we praise God or we're, we bless God for the spiritual blessings we have, for being chosen, for being predestined and adopted, to being redeemed. And then in verse 15, he says, For this reason, because I have heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Paul, as he wrote to each of these churches, he didn't have to look hard to find a reason to be thankful as he wrote to his brothers and sisters, he was always encouraged to turn to the Lord and to see what he was doing in their lives, to be thankful. Even the church of Corinth, you guys remember <laughs> Corinth, they were knuckleheads, right? <laughs> they were abusing their spiritual gifts and using them in sinful, selfish ways. One man was sleeping with his father's wife. And in the end of the or towards the end of the book, Paul even tells them, hey, it's better if you guys don't get together because your meetings cause more harm than they do good. But that same church, look at how Paul greets them. First Corinthians one through eight. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our and our brother Sothian to the churches of God that are in Corinth. 
to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. He doesn't look far to find a reason to be thankful. Paul always has something to be thankful for when he thinks about the Christians, when he writes to his people. Now turn over to the book of Galatians with me. Right after 1 Corinthians. The salutation here in Galatians is significantly different. There's a sharp contrast in how Paul introduces himself in this letter to the Galatians. He almost follows the same format, but there's a unique difference. Some important features are missing and some important features are added. Paul provides an important clarification concerning his apostleship, bringing clarity that he uh, is defending his apostleship in this letter. And he includes an elaborate salvific explanation of Christ's work. So look at how Paul greets them. He bypasses all the pleasantries and he says, Galatians chapter 1, read with me down to verse 10. Paul, an apostle, and here's the deviation, not from men nor through man, but through Christ Jesus, I'm sorry, through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. And when you will expect Paul to give thanks, as he usually does, look at what verse 6 says. I am astonished. That's first century for, what's up with y'all? <laughs> I am astonished. I can't believe it that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven, Paul gets hypothetical, even an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you. Let him be accursed, damned, sentenced to hell. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary, a gospel contrary to what you receive, let him be accursed. For am I seeking to be approval, uh, seeking the approval of men or of God? Am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. There's a different tone in the letter, a sense of urgency on Paul's part. Why? Because this letter, the gospel is at stake. Paul bypasses all of the greetings that we would be accustomed to because he sees that there's an urgent need. 
Just as a little background on the book of Galatians, it's written around 50 AD or so. Paul was, uh, this letter is the only letter of Paul that is meant to be circulated to different churches. All the other letters that he writes are circulated and do get circulated, but this one was meant to go to different churches. It's written for the purpose of being circulated to the churches of Galatia or modern-day Turkey. Paul writes this letter immediately following his first missionary journey. He founded these churches on his first missionary journey. You can read Acts chapter 13 and 14 this afternoon to get the background on that. And this is directly following the Jerusalem Council. You can read about in Acts chapter 15, which as you read Acts chapter 15, it provides really helpful background to what Paul is writing against. If you can turn there, go to Acts chapter 15. We'll read it together just so that you can see the problem that Paul wants to address. Acts 15, 1 through 12, I'll read it quickly. If you get there, you'll see Paul is trying to answer the question in Acts chapter 15. They're trying to answer the question of what is exactly necessary for Gentiles to become born again believers in Christ. But some of the men, Acts chapter 15, Luke writes, verse 1, But some of the men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debated with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostle and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them in order, uh, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Verse 7. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said, Brothers, you know that in earlier days God made a choice among you that by the mouth of the Gentiles, by the mouth of the Gentiles should hear the by my mouth, the Gentiles shall hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us. And, made no, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter is saying, God didn't require this of you guys. He didn't require it uh, of, of us. Why would you place this burden on them? And we see that he gave the Gentiles the spirit. So what we see in Acts 15 is this reality that there were false teachers that came into the churches of Galatia that Paul had established, and they are sowing false teaching. They refer to them as the Judaizers. They infiltrated these recently planted churches. They were teaching that Gentiles that wanted to become full-fledged believers, if you will, they had to first adhere to the law of Moses, accepting circumcision and become a proselytes. Then they could exercise saving faith in Christ. So you see the gravity of which Paul has to write this letter because the gospel is at stake. People are trying to add something to what it takes to be saved. Most false teachers, they twist 
the scriptures in one or three ways or the truth of the gospel in one or three ways. They twist the truth in some way to make it say what it never meant to say. They subtract from the truth and they leave out crucial elements or they add something to the truth, requiring more than what is necessary. In Galatians, that's what we have here. This particular heresy fits into the third category, commonly known as legalism. One commentator, he says, uh, in clarifying this argument of the Judaizers this way, they would say something along the lines of, quote, faith is fine. Jesus is good, the cross works, the blood helps, but it's not enough to cover sins. To be dressed for heaven, you've got to add to your wardrobe a few religious accessories, like Sabbath worship, circumcisions, etc. End quote. What's his point? They wanted to add to the gospel. Christ plus something. And Paul writes to clarify the truth and to warn these churches the dangers that they're facing if they even attempt to flirt around with this truth, if they entertain it in any way. It's a damning message if they embrace it. And Paul is seeking to help these brothers and sisters. So what? What does a first century challenge of the gospel have to do with us today? Why are, why should we care? After all, we don't have Judaizers coming in here telling us we need to be circumcised, do we? Not today. Come in here with that. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, there will always be a threat to the purity of the gospel, and so we must guard against these threats in the church. And the best way to guard against them is to know what the truth is. That way you will be able to defend the truth when error arises. And Paul's going to help us this morning as he defends his apostleship and as he encourages these brothers in this greeting. We'll look at the first five verses, but the theme of where we're going is this gospel has to be seen as correct. It has to be properly understood. And the book of Galatians is going to help us understand that as we walk through it. So look with me at the first five verses as we start our study this morning. I'll read them. Paul says, Paul, an apostle. Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The gospel of grace must impact the Christian's perspective in every aspect of life. Paul is going to look at the gospel effect in his life, the grace impacted in his life. And so from Galatians 1 through 5, we'll look at how the grace impacts the way Christians understand the life in three areas. One, how it impacts how you see yourself, the perspective you have of others, and how you view eternity. So look at verse 1 with me. Paul, an apostle, not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So remember what's going on here. Paul is beginning to defend his apostolic authority. In this section of Galatians, the first two chapters, that's what Paul is trying to do. 
Establish the fact that he has the right to tell people what the gospel is. He must do this not for his own benefit, but because the gospel he preached to the Galatians is tied to their understanding of knowing that Paul is from Christ. He has the authority to talk about the gospel because he is from Christ. He says, Paul, an apostle. We're familiar with this word apostle. It's, it's a messenger, a, a sent one, a, a representative. Someone who represents someone that's co- commissioned directly by someone else to speak on their behalf. The authority that a person has is com- uh, who is commissioned is found in the person who commissioned them. If I commissioned you today to go to Fort Riley military base and to tell them to uh, do specific military plans, you might find yourself arrested in a dark hole somewhere. (laughs) I just don't have any pool there. But if the president were to commission you to go there, people might be inclined to listen to you, right? Because your authority that you have as an apostle, as a representative, is tied to the one who sent you. Paul here is saying, hey, I was not sent from men nor through men, but through Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ. It's, it's marking a, a stark contrast. But look at how Paul explains who he's not sent by. He says, not from men nor through Man, this language, I think, provides us some insight to what the argument of the Judaizers would have been. Paul is not a real apostle. He's maybe a lowercase apostle. He didn't walk with Jesus. He didn't experience Jesus' life on this earth. So at best, maybe some of the other apostles commissioned him. Maybe Peter said, go ahead and tell them about Jesus. Paul says, no. It's not from men in general or particular, any particular man. Paul wants to make it clear that his apostleship has no ties and doesn't originate from any man. And if you think about it, it could be a legitimate argument. If Peter told him to go preach the gospel, he has rights to preach the gospel. But Paul doesn't want any of his authority tied to any man at all. And so he says, "Uh uh-uh, not from men nor through man. There's no way that you can even trace upstream and find that his authority came from Christ through anyone else. It's directly from Christ. He was commissioned directly from Christ. Look at the grace that oozes out of this. Remember who Paul was? Saul, persecutor of the church, determined to stamp out the faith that he's now saying he is an apostle of. See, Paul is not defending himself for him for his sake, his own sake. He's defending himself because the gospel is at stake here. Paul affirms No man has sent me. No man has commissioned me. Only Christ and God the Father. The Apostle Paul's credentials were authenticated because of who deputized him. And Paul, his greeting is making it clear that he understands who he is representing. 
Paul, the apostle, formula, formally, formally, whew, Saul, the persecutor. And he recognized this, you guys. I think Paul lived in light of this every single day. He knew who he was. He knew where the Lord has saved him from and who he is now. And he realized that it's no room for Paul to boast in his apostleship. He is only apostle and he only has the right to call himself that because of the grace of God. Because of what Christ has done for him. He reiterates this. Throughout his epistles, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 2, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord Jesus? 2 Timothy 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. But if I want to have a peek into Paul's heart, I have to go to 1 Corinthians 15. Turn it with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 I think gives me a glimpse into Paul's heart and what he understood about himself. Did he have the title of apostle? Certainly. Did he have authority in the church? For sure. He wrote 13 of the epistles that we read. But what was the man Paul's heart like? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and read with me verses 1 through 10. Paul says, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And humanly speaking, that's where it should end, right? Look at verse 8. Last of all, he didn't feel like he deserved it. Last of all. As one untimely born. He, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles. Unworthy to be called an apostle. Because I persecuted the church of God. Look at what he says. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. See, Paul didn't flaunt his apostleship badge for his own sake. He believed that he was unworthy to be called apostle. He believed, last of all, he was untimely born. Paul here, he flaunts his credentials only for the reason of helping these people understand that the gospel that he preaches is the right gospel. We understand this, right? This is common. If you discredit the man, you can discredit his message, right? I remember this uniquely around the time of 
Ravi Zacharias passing and all that things that came out, people were questioning their own salvation. He, I was listening to him when I came to faith. What now? Am I really saved? Because his, the man was discredited, the message sank with it. And here, I believe these Judaizers are trying to or discredit Paul's message. Or, and so they go about discrediting Paul. But Paul understood who he was. He looked at himself from the right perspective as one who was only what he was because of the grace of God. Like you look through glasses to see the world better. Paul looked through the grace of God to see who he was. And he realized that because he had been given the stewardship of protecting the gospel, that he was going to defend it. And so here he says, I, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus. So what does that mean for you? You're not an apostle. If you thought you were, let's talk about it afterwards. I think as we look at our own life and we see who we are in our lives, we can find the same reason that Paul does to view ourselves in the right perspective. The grace of God should correct our perspective on life because we are who we are only because of the grace of God. What should this do for the heart of the believer? I think it should cultivate thanksgiving for us, you guys. And humility. Paul has humility and thanksgiving oozing out of him. Apostle of Jesus Christ. Why? By the grace of God. Paul's divine appointment encourages us and our divine appointment. No, we are not apostles, but we're all children of God, born again by his grace, appointed for the work that he has given us here on earth. Each of us have our different arenas of life that we're responsible for. Each of us have people that we can impact for the truth. Why? Because of the grace of God. Look at yourself the way that Paul does. The influence, your jobs, your responsibilities. As you see yourself through grace-saturated lenses, it'll help you as you do work for the Lord here on earth. Look at point two in your handouts. This Christian grace that we've received, this grace that we have should saturate how we perceive others as well. Paul says, to all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul invites these churches of Galatia to consider his defense, and he does so not from his own authority alone. He does say, Paul, an apostle, but he also says, the brothers who are with me. I'm not the only one believing what I believe. As he goes on to expound what the gospel is, he's going to make it clear that this is not only him who holds this position. The men who are with me, all the brothers who are with me, Paul says. This is not his own opinion that he's appealing to, but it's a, an understanding of a common Christian faith. Martin Luther commented on this verse. He says this, quote, Paul, he's speaking about, adds a Good measure of argument that he does not stand alone, but that all the brothers that are with him attest to the fact that his doctrine is divinely true. 
although the brethren were not apostles like himself, yet they are all of one mind and think and write as I do, is what Paul is communicating, end quote. He calls them brothers. You see that there? Brothers. It's indicating a close relationship, intimate relationship with one another. Members of the same family, born of the same origin, brothers, Paul says. This language we are familiar with, it's common in the New Testament, but I think we can overlook its significance sometimes. I know I did when I was studying. It's a simple reminder that believers are of the same family. We're all of the same family. Paul calls them brothers. Notice who he says they are. You see the list of people he, he puts there? He doesn't tell us who they are. He doesn't give names. Paul, he's okay with giving names. We read Philippians 1 earlier. He mentioned Timothy. Uh, we read Colossians 1 earlier. He mentioned Timothy. And then in 1 Thessalonians, he mentioned Savannah and Timothy. He's okay with name dropping. Paul tells us here, I'm not the only one believe this. Who else believes it? Instead of giving names, he tells us not who they are because that's not important. He tells us what they are. What are they? They're his brothers. Yeah, they got the same heavenly father. Jesus is their eldest brother. What's important about these men, Paul? They're my brothers. Yeah, all believe in Jesus. Paul was not on his apostolic high horse. He was okay with being with people. In fact, he desired to be with people. It wasn't I, Paul, the apostle. It was I, Paul, the apostle, and my brothers. And this is how we should view people, right? But even look at what he says next. And to the church, he calls them Church, the churches of Galatia. Paul is writing the people that he certainly has disagreements with as brothers. The church. This is the church. I believe that Paul is fulfilling his brotherly obligation to these people. It's hard for me not to imagine Paul doesn't have faces and names in mind. Man, there's no way Bob can believe that. That's my brother. He can't be wrong on the gospel here. That's, that's my brother. <clears throat> Paul is moved by his brotherly love for these men because he believes them to be in Christ. And so he writes them, hey, guys, you got to get this gospel thing right. You can't be adding things to the gospel. It's Christ and nothing else. Come on, Bob. You think of something named Bob? And probably not Bob. Galatians. <laughs> You must understand the truth. He calls them the ecclesia, the church, the, the called out ones, the local assembly. These are the people who gather together because they have one thing in common primarily. And that was they all trusted in the Lord Jesus. And so Paul writes to them, brothers, the brothers are with me. We write to the churches of Galatia. Then he says this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, familiar with this term. We see it when we drive up every day, right? The unconditional goodwill of God towards men. 
expressed primarily in the saving work of Christ. Galatians 1.6, we'll study those verses next week. He says, I am astounded that you are so quickly discerning him who called you by, or called you in his what? The grace of Christ. Grace is the unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. You know the old acrostic, God's riches at Christ's expense, right? Not because of anything you've done, not because of anything that you've earned, but because God chose to do so. He says to them, grace and peace to you. Now I ask myself, why, would he, why does he always say grace and peace? Read all of his letters. Grace and peace. 1 Corinthians 1 through grace and peace. 2 Corinthians 1 2. Grace and peace. Ephesians 1. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. He always puts them together. And grace is always first. Why? Because you can't know peace without grace. First, grace must come in your life, and then you can establish, you can have peace. Remember Paul in Romans 5 1? We have peace with God. Why? Because of what Christ has done. Here, Paul says, grace and peace, not from some king or governor, but from who? God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace must come first, and then you can have peace. I'm cutting away as we go, you guys, so bear with me. I have a quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones here. He says, quote, grace is the beginning of our faith. Peace is the end of our faith. Grace is the fountain, the spring, the source. It is the particular place in the mountain from which the mighty river you see roll into the sea starts its race. Without it, there will be nothing. Grace is the origin and the source and the fount and everything in the Christian life. But what does the Christian life mean? And what does it produce? The answer is peace. So there we have the source, the eternal estuary leading to the sea and beginning and the end, the initiation and the purpose for which is all meant to be designed. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Brothers and sisters, remember this. Just that, that you're brothers and sisters. The ones who have experienced grace and now you have peace with God. We've been given the privilege to steward the message of reconciliation and to go out into the world and tell them about Christ and to preach to them this undeserved favor, this grace that we have. Paul here is addressing the church who's getting the gospel wrong, and he's trying to clarify things for them as we go throughout the book. And he starts off by saying grace and peace. And so preach grace and peace to yourself and preach grace and peace to others as well. For the sake of time, let's move on to the last point. A Christian must have a grace-saturated perspective of eternity. Paul, speaking of Christ, he says in verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Central to Paul's attempt to woo these Galatians back to the true gospel is his insistence throughout the book, throughout the letter of the cross of Christ and its unique sufficiency as the means of salvation. Paul is going to 
press again and again that Christ is sufficient and his work is sufficient. And here he, he, di- he displays or portrays Christ's work as a, a rescue mission. He's delivered us from this present evil age. Embracing the cross of Christ, you're being delivered out. You've been saved out, rescued out of this present evil age. Why? He says, because Christ gave himself. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Christ laid down his life for those who would come to him. He did so so that you can be rescued. I'm not going to make it, you guys. Titus 2, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ died. To save us out, to rescue us. Christ's offering is not the only peculiar of his people's forgiveness from the past sins, but to deliver them from the realm in which sin is irresistible and to move them to the realm where he is Lord. And one day he's coming and one day he's promised to come back for us and to take us and to separate us completely from the very presence of sin. And I would urge you, believer to occupy your mind with these things this rescue mission that christ has done that he has accomplished for us do you think about it does it motivate you does it encourage you spurgeon says quote christ died for our sins not for our virtues it is not your efficiencies but your deficiencies, which entitles you to the Lord Jesus. It is not your wealth, but your lack. It's not what you have, but what you don't have. I thought that was really good. Unquote. One day Christ is coming back. And when you think about this, believer, as you dwell on the fact that you've been the receiver of grace and therefore you have peace and you are where you are only because of the grace and that Christ has rescued out of the domain of darkness and one day he's coming to separate you from the very presence of sin, what is your response? Look at what Paul's is. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He worships. He simply worships. Because he has to? No. Because he's thankful. He's thankful for what the Lord has done. And this is the natural reaction for every Christian who meditates on the truth that Christ has redeemed you, has brought you back, who has rescued you, who has delivered you from this present evil age. You respond with a similar doxology as Paul does. You ascribe glory to the Lord. And that's what we get to do this morning. That's what we get to participate in every week. And that's what we get to do in our homes every morning. Amen. We should be very thankful as we look at our lives and we have a graced perspective of ourselves 
it'll impact how we have a grace perspective of others because we've meditated on the fact that we have an eternity ahead of us where we worship God. I'm out of time. I cut a lot. I'm sorry. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your grace and thank you for your kindness. We know we don't deserve it. We know you spanned a great distance to bring us to yourself. Help us to be thankful and to worship you because you deserve it and we don't. Please allow the cross to never be moved too far from the front of our minds, but allow us to dwell on these things so that you will receive the glory you deserve from these lives until you return for us and in forevermore. In your name I pray. Amen.